Welcome to those of you who are here this morning and those of you who are joining us online. My name is Trevor. It's good to be with you this morning. Welcome to Advent. Uh, we have arrived into the Advent season. For those of you who do not know, Advent is a word that means coming, and it's a, a season of waiting and preparation for Christ to come. Last week, we concluded a long series, 10 weeks in the book of Judges, where things got darker and darker and darker. And we now proclaim, as we look forward to Christmas, that the light of God has come into the world and that the darkness shall not overcome the light. Amen? Amen. We need light in our darkness, don't we? We read the newspaper and we watch the news and we check our feeds and we discover violence and chaos and we see a, a, a low and we see anxiety and stress and you can see that our world is filled with darkness and you can feel that darkness at about 4.40 now in the afternoons, right? As everything gets dark and regularly my wife and I turn to one another and say, why does it feel like it's midnight when it's 6.30? Um, the world feels darker and in the midst of that darkness, we long for the light. One of my things that we do that church, churches have traditionally done is the lighting of the Advent candles. And I don't really know that everyone understands what's happening up here, so I'll take just a moment before we dive into our text this morning to explain the beauty of this. Our first week of Advent, we light the first candle, and then each subsequent week, we light a new candle, and this light on stage will grow brighter. And then on Christmas Eve, we will light the Christ candle, which is the largest candle. And all of a sudden, the light has gotten bigger and brighter. And then Christmas Eve service, which I hope you'll join us for, this room will be nearly pitch black. And we will all have candles. And as the light of God comes into the world and grows brighter, and Christ comes into the world and grows brightest, we will light our candles from the Christ candle, seeing God's light move in this room in every single person's hands, and the room will fill up with light as we become a people of light sent out into a world that desperately needs light. It's a beautiful picture, and it begins this morning with the first lighting of the first candle as we sing together, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Advent first started not primarily as a celebration of Christmas, but as a celebration of and reminder of the parousia, the second coming of Christ. We as Christians believe Christ came, certainly. He lived, he died on a cross, he rose again on the third day. But we wait with Christians around the world for the day in which Christ shall return. And this one Sunday every year, the first Sunday of Advent, we take a moment to focus on not the coming of Christ at Christmas, but the second coming of Christ at the end of time. And so this morning, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 24, verses 26, sorry, that should be 36 through 44, and that's where we're going to spend some time together this morning. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. We will read the text, and, uh, and then we will dive into it. Matthew 24, 36 through 44, this is Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, 
no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is God's word for us this morning. We thank him as we hear from him. I don't know if you celebrated Thanksgiving this week. I imagine many of you did. Most of you either hosted someone or you were the one someone hosted. And, uh, and when you are hosting, you are often making preparations for someone to enter into your space. Uh, maybe you're cleaning the bathroom, maybe you're mopping the floors, maybe you're making sure the towels are all nice and fluffed, maybe you're lighting a candle ensuring that the, your home smells good so that when guests come over, when the knock at the door happens, you'll be ready to receive them and you'll show them your dwelling place as clean as it ever looks. And you may tell your friends and family Please arrive at 3.30, and if they arrive at 3.30, good on them. They arrive at 4, that's okay too. But occasionally, someone will decide to knock on the door 30 minutes before they were told to be there. And while they often don't get to peek behind the door, what they would often hear and or see is a kind of scrambling that takes place. We're not ready yet to have you, but we'll throw this underneath the couch. We'll throw this in a closet somewhere. We'll tuck this behind a door that we don't expect anyone to go into. We often know what it's like to prepare for someone's arrival, and we know what it feels like when we are not entirely ready. We get ready in lots of ways in our lives. We get ready for first dates. We get ready for the first day of school. We get ready for Christmas and Christmas celebrations. We get ready for weddings. We have all kinds of events that we know how to get ready for. And when we open Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is inviting us to get ready for his return. But I would, I would say that most of us don't know exactly how to do that. Maybe we hear Jesus say, be ready, and we want to follow that command, but we don't really know what that looks like. This morning, it's my hope 
that you would leave here more ready for Christ's return than when you walked in this morning. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has just finished talking about the destruction of the temple, which was going to happen 30 years after he had said it. He's talking with his disciples and he's teaching about them about that day. And then he turns in verse 36 and he looks forward past the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and he looks forward to the day when he would come back returning in glory, returning in majesty, returning in power. He predicts his visible, physical return. And two times in the text that we look at, he uses this word coming, which I've already said is the word parousia. It's the word where we get Advent from. And parousia is a word that means um, coming or the returned presence of one who has already been with you. Parousia comes with, um, with, the, with the pictures of a high-ranking official returning or coming back from battle. It's a time of preparation and a time of celebration. It's a prepared for event. As Christians, we stand today in anticipation of the day in which God will return physically, the coming of God himself in his second coming. Now, every time we talk about the second coming, it's really easy to fall into one of two errors. The first I will call the skeptical. The second I will call the speculators. The two extremes that often face us when we talk about the return of Christ is first the skeptical. Some who in the church sit with arms crossed, hearing a story of Christ's return, and maybe they even buy into the idea that Jesus was a man, and he was born, and he did die, and he did rise again, but the notion of him returning feels far-fetched, more like a fairy tale or a children's story, and they, they think about this old traditional view, that can't be right, that can't make, that, that doesn't make any sense, that can't happen. Because those kinds of things don't happen in our world. And so we become skeptical. And I understand the skepticism. Maybe some of you this morning, when you think of the second coming of Christ, your first impulse is to go, I'm not so sure. Nevertheless, the reason we hold to this is because Jesus was very clear about it. And Jesus made a promise. And he always keeps his promises. And I would rather be standing on the promises of Jesus being called a fool by everybody else than to stand on the side of the world mocking and laughing at our Savior. So the first error that we have is the error of being too skeptical. But if we're not careful, there can be another error, which is the too speculative, or what I would call the speculators. It seems like all the time, often on Facebook or occasionally through my email, I will get some person who on the margins of my life or maybe in the margins of my family who will send me some news clipping of some story which is to give me the impression that literally today is the day that Christ is going to return. COVID happened. He's coming now. Amazon stores now have palm readers. He's coming now. The vaccine, its boost and its double boost means he's coming now. 
And every single moment is filled with the anticipation, it's got to be happening right now. And they stand around in their rooms with their walls, with their newspaper clippings and their, and their pins and their lines drawn as they're attempting to calculate the moment that Jesus is going back. Constantly speculating, seeing everything as a sign. Calm down. Let's keep it simple. Jesus makes it very clear that we will not know the exact time that he is going to return. So we ought not get into too much speculation. And at the same time, Jesus promises that he is going to return to make all things right. And so we ought not be too skeptical. Let us deal with Christ and his words without avoiding them or stretching them to cover everything. The heart of the text we're looking at this morning is unexpectedness. Jesus emphasizes repeatedly the unexpectedness of his return. He says they will not know. On the one hand, it's expected because he says it's going to happen. And at the same time, it's unexpected for Christ teaches repeatedly that it's unknown when it's going to happen. There is no date his point in the text that we're looking at this morning is that it will happen suddenly, it will happen unexpectedly, and that it will take all of us by surprise. The only ones who won't be surprised are those who are ready, awake, watching, looking, waiting. Because even though the date and time is unknown, we do know that Christ fulfills his promises. In verse 36, he says, nobody knows. It's unknown to everyone except for God the Father. In verse 39, he says, the community that was around Noah, they knew nothing. And in verse 42, he says, stay awake. You don't know. So in our short time together this morning, here's kind of where we'll be. I want to look at Jesus' very plain teaching first. Secondly, we will look at a historical analogy that Jesus uses. Third, we will look at a secular analogy that Jesus uses. And I will press in on just two points of application that I think will help us be ready. So that's where we're heading. First, his teaching, then a historical analogy, then a secular analogy, and then two points of application. That's five points. I promise we will move rather quickly. First, a teaching. In verse 36, Jesus teaches very clearly concerning that day and hour. Now, if you're reading Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has been talking about these things. If with your eyes you look up to verse 34, you'll see that Jesus says um, that these things will happen and, and that this generation will not pass away until these things happen. And when he says these things, he's talking about everything leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And then he pivots and says, but concerning that day and hour. So Jesus contrasts these things and that day. So in verse 36, he says, concerning that day. And he says, and that day, nobody knows that day, not even angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, the disciples, like I said, who had been with Jesus, had no idea that the temple would actually be destroyed in AD 70, even though Jesus had been teaching them about it. They saw that coming because he had taught it. They experienced it. 
But then Jesus looks through again AD 70 to the time of his future return. And here Jesus says that that day is unknown. Nobody knows only the Father. Do the angels know when Christ is going to return? Jesus says, no, they do not. Does Jesus himself know when he is going to return? He says, no, I do not. This was such a controversial teaching that if you look in your Bibles in the Gospel of Matthew, you will see that it says that in Matthew, include nor the Son. And the reason they don't is because we believe that some copyist who was writing down Matthew 24 at some point couldn't believe that Jesus wouldn't know and so omitted those words. But the reason we know that Jesus actually said this is because in all the manuscripts in the Gospel of Mark, where we also get this teaching, they include nor the Son. While we respect that some copyists wanted to protect Jesus here, made a mistake. Jesus is honest. Now, I know that for some of you that goes, hold on a second. I thought Jesus was omniscient. Well, he is. Jesus is omniscient and he does know everything. But when the Son of God took on flesh, he limited himself in his ability to know everything. In the flesh, he wasn't omniscient. Sure, there are times when Christ, by supernatural power, knows things that could not be known by any other way. But other times in Scripture, we have these odd moments. One of my favorites is when Jesus crosses a road to see if a fig tree has figs on it. That's not the kind of thing you do if you know that the fig tree has figs on it. We see throughout the text occasionally, Jesus doesn't know some things. But here's the interesting thing about that day and hour. Jesus says he doesn't know what it's going to be, but he knows that he doesn't know. He knows that he doesn't know. That is important. Christ knew his limits. Nobody knows. No human knows. No angel knows. Only the Father knows when Christ will return. And because nobody knows, nobody can forecast it. Nobody can make true arrangements for it because it has an immediate and sudden arrival. So we are called not to speculate and not to calculate, not to waste our time trying to figure it out. Occasionally, a child will ask their parents a question, and the parents would say something like, that's not his Well, if the child then attempts to eavesdrop or make it the child's business, the child is being disobedient. In the same way, it is disobedient for us to try to figure out when Christ is going to return. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus is clear with his disciples. He says, this is not for you to know. And I think I highlight this in part because throughout history, including American history, there have been too many people who have heard Jesus said, this is not for you to know, and have said, oh, yes, it is. And they have often done great damage. In my own life, I think of a famous American fundamentalist preacher named Harold Camping. He predicted the exact day of the end of the world, got a bunch of Christians together into his circle to prepare, sell their possessions, and to wait for a particular day. And when that day came and Jesus didn't show up, he recalculated. 
And I can't believe it happened twice, but it happened twice. He got a new group of people who listened to him again, and he missed the mark a second time. And what did he do? He did it a third time. And the reason I think I bring that up, honestly, before you, brothers and sisters, is because I have people in my life who were a part of that movement, who have walked away from Christian faith because they followed a leader who was certain that he could figure out the exact time of Christ's return. It is forbidden for us to know. It is impossible for us to know. Nobody knows and nobody can know. Now, we may see signs in the world of darkness, as I opened up with, things that we point to and go, man, Christ, when are you going to come back and fix that? And that's a right and good impulse. But we ought to avoid the temptation of attempting to know that which Christ tells us is not for us to know. So that's the plain teaching. Nobody knows. And then Jesus lays out a historical analogy. He uses an Old Testament parallel for us to see his return more clearly. And he talks about the Noah story. Noah had been warned that rain was going to come. And so if you know the Noah story from Genesis chapter 6, Noah's task is to build a large boat. Noah begins to work at that boat. And the judgment of the flood was coming. Now we do know from 2 Peter that Noah often warned people. He was known as someone who was warning others that, Christ, or that God was going to send a flood. And they must have made fun of him. For the size of Noah's ark was massive. And I imagine they looked in the clouds and they saw no reason to think it was going to rain. And then all of a sudden it did begin to rain. I wondered if they ridiculed Noah. I wonder how often they made fun of him while he began to make preparations for a day that God told him was coming, a day that he was ready to see come, but a day that looked kind of strange to everyone else who was placed around him. I wonder what they said to Noah as Noah looked forward past the clear skies into the coming thunderstorm, and as people began to say to Noah, Noah, you're crazy. I wonder how Noah felt when he said, it may look crazy, but I'm preparing for a promise that I know God is going to keep. What did they do instead? Well, Jesus says instead, the people around Noah, they spent time eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They spent time buying and selling and going about their business, planting and building and and building businesses as usual. And, and, And there was no change in any of those normal activities that they were doing. I find it fascinating that Christ does not say that when Noah's building the ark, people are busy sinning all the time. No, that's not his point. His point is that while Noah was preparing to build the ark, that that the people around Noah were so preoccupied with ordinary life that they in no way, shape, or form prepared for the day of God's coming, the day of God's judgment. They, in verse 39, says they knew nothing. They didn't care. They were preoccupied until the moment the flood came. And Jesus says, that is how it will be. Sudden, dramatic, devastating. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. Two two women will be working. One will be taken. Now, this is not about the rapture. I should make that really clear because in high school, I was shown too many movies that scared me. Movies of pilots flying planes and all of a sudden the pilot disappears. 
That is not what this text is about. And that is terrifying as a kid, by the way, to step onto a plane wondering if the, hoping the pilot's not Christian. It's not about the rapture. And not only that, you don't really, according to Jesus, want to be taken away. After all, the language that Christ uses is in the days of Noah, those who were swept away were swept away in the floodwaters of judgment. So on some level, you know, you don't want to be taken away. You want to be left behind. I guess they're making that movie again because the first three times it wasn't good enough. That's not what this is about. I just want to be clear. I want, I want you to see that this text about being taken away is not about the rapture. We can talk about that another day. What this text is about, and I hope you do see this, is that Christ is making clear that when he returns, there will be a division. There will be those who are saved and those who are not. You cannot read this text and come to the conclusion, when Christ comes, that's great for everybody. Because everybody's going to be rescued. That is, it goes against the very teaching of Christ. Christ teaches that some will be saved and others will not be. Here it's Noah preparing for the day of rain, working on the ark. Him and his family and those in which he brings into the ark are rescued. And those who are just too busy with the ordinary of life to ever think about God, to think about eternity, to think about their future, those who are busy eating and drinking and getting married and doing work, it is those who are in trouble. Why? Because they never gave any attention to the things of God. I wonder about us. I wonder how often we give our attention in the middle of our lives to God's coming. Jesus also uses a secular analogy in verses 43 and 44. He uses a sort of secular parable. In verse 43, he says, tells the story of a master who is unable to stay awake through the night and so gets robbed by the burglar. If the house owner had known what time the burglar would come in, he could have prevented the break-in. And so Jesus' teaching here is to keep watch and to stay awake because you don't know what time the burglar's going to come. Every year about this time, my family watches Home Alone. And Kevin McAllister is a decent picture of the second coming of Christ. Why? Because when the wet show up in Home Alone, he's ready for them. He's ready with all kinds of traps. He's prepared. He is what Christ is talking about, being prepared and being ready. Burglars don't send emails. Burglars wait. They wait for when they know you're probably not home. They wait for when they know that you're not paying attention. That's how to be a good burglar. And Christ teaches we must do is stay awake and be prepared so that we are not caught off guard the way that someone who has their house robbed is. We must, Christ teaches again and again, stay awake and we must be ready for his coming. Jesus hammered this point. Be ready. It will be unexpected. Be ready. He taught it plainly and clearly. He taught it by the story of Noah. He taught it by the story of this burglar who breaks into the master's home. 
It's totally unexpected. And so as he lays this out for us, our response in order to be obedient to, to Christ, obedient to Christ is that we must stay awake and be ready. And now if I asked you the question, what does it look like to be ready? You, you might be wondering and maybe should be wondering, what does that look like? What are the implications of that in my life? Well, I could give 10 of them. I will give two. Here's the first one I want to press into you. How to be ready for Christ's return. Here's the first problem that I think we face. I'm going to call it inconsistent faithfulness. We should not be ready one day a week. If Christ comes back and we are only ready one day a week, those are not good odds for us. That's the wrong kind of Russian roulette. We are to keep watch to be ready because Christ may come today. He may come on a Sunday. But the only way to be ready for Jesus is to be ready every day. We cannot be and must not be like people in Noah's day. So preoccupied with the ordinary that we miss the sacred. My concern is that too many Christians have inconsistent faithfulness. We have a Sunday-only spiritual life. We pray on Sunday morning, 10 a.m. to about 11.30. And then we take six days off only to gather again on the seventh day. It is good to be together in worship. In fact, we must be together in worship. It's the best place to be for it lays the foundation for everything we do the rest of the week. But the Christian life is about everyday faithfulness. It's about long obedience in the same direction. Some of you are thinking, man, if Jesus shows up Sunday at 10 o'clock, I'm good. But what about Monday through Saturday? We sing a song occasionally here in this church, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. Beware of an on-off Christian faith. One of the things we do in our church is we gather together on Sunday. We also try to gather together in the middle of the week in different kinds of groups. We also try to have coffee and meals together. We also try to have people into our home. Part of the reason we do that is because we want to be such in one another's lives that we're able to see each other well and to point one another well faithfully to Christ day in and day out. If all you do is consume a service once a week, you are likely to become a consumer of church rather than a participator in the body of Christ. And let me ask you this question when it comes to inconsistent faithfulness. Do me a favor. This won't apply to all of you, but I'm certain this will apply to some of you. I want you to think about a moment this week where you are you are, you are, it wouldn't be so great for Christ to show up. And maybe that moment is consistent because you saw it last week or maybe not last week because of the holidays, maybe the week before and the week before and the week before. Where's a moment in your week right now that you could point to and say, if Christ comes back, boy, I hope it's not 2.30 on Tuesday night. Boy, I hope it's not when I'm driving home from work. Boy, I hope it's not during my staff meeting. Boy, I hope it's not when I'm in a heated argument with my wife about the same thing we argue about every week. When's the moment 
when Christ, if he arrived, would not be so great for you. And here's what I want you to do. Think about that moment this coming week and ask yourself, what could you do now in preparation for that moment to be ready for Christ coming in the midst of it? What would it, what would it look like to practice a kind of faithfulness in that moment so that, so that in that moment, which is often so habitual for you, could become a moment where you could say, Lord, if you come now, if you come now, I'd want you to, I'd want you to find me in your presence, ready for your coming. So my first application point, inconsistent faithfulness. And my second one is this. It's delayed faithfulness. Not inconsistent, but delayed. Brothers and sisters, God does not owe you another opportunity to do what he's already given you enough time to do. Too often we decide that we're going to be faithful tomorrow. Don't be faithful tomorrow. Be faithful today. Don't forgive tomorrow. Forgive today. I know that often we think, I'll change that relationship tomorrow. Give me a few weeks. Let me sort some things out, and then I will give time to my family. Let me finish this up, and then I'll deal with that difficult relationship. Let me just, let me just get things under work under control, and then, God, I'll have more time for prayer and scripture. Let me just get through this particular season, and then you can have my faithfulness. Delayed faithfulness is an abuse of God's grace. Because it is relying on God's grace as a backup plan while you pursue what you think is more important now. And it is idolatry. When, when, when Christ returns, may he not find us delaying faithfulness. May he find us living faithfully as his people, ready for his return. If that happens today, and I hope it's today, I hope he'll find us ready. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's this week, I don't know. But may he find us pursuing faithfulness, not delaying it. Where's an area in your life where you need to be faithful and you need to stop procrastinating. I don't know if you're ready or not for Christ's coming. But I do know that if you have received Christ, if you've been transformed by Christ, that day will be a glorious day of culmination. Finally, joyfully, for Christ is our only hope. But I also want you to see this. Often when we create space in our lives to receive someone, we clean everything up in hopes that as they enter into our lives or our spaces, they would look around and see us at our best. But Christ does not do that. He sees you at your worst. He sees your messed up, inconsistent, unfaithful life. He sees it now. And he doesn't say... Fix it up because I'm coming. He says, allow me in now 
so that I can fix it up for you. See, when Christ returns, it is my hope that he will find a church resting in his forgiveness, walking in faithfulness, not resisting his forgiveness and pursuing our own selfish interests. What does it look like to be ready for Christ's coming? It looks like day in and day out, making your life the kind of life that says, Christ, I desire to be faithful with my whole life today, not tomorrow. I desire to be faithful with my every day, not just one day. And when you come, would you find me resting in your forgiveness and not resisting it? Are you ready for Christ to return today? If not, it's my hope that you would be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray first for those who are here who have been resisting your forgiveness. They have been attempting to fix themselves. Help them to see this morning that you are God and that they are not, and that the only thing that they contribute to their own salvation is the sin that made it possible. Help them to see the cross as the place where in which you paid for all of their sins and the place where you invite them into receiving your forgiveness so that you might dwell in their lives with them in preparation of that day when you return physically and triumphantly. And Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for those who are here who know you and have a relationship with you. Lord, would you convict them of their inconsistencies and would you draw them into everyday, ordinary faithfulness? And Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their delayed faithfulness and the ways in which they have often taken advantage of your grace, putting off faithfulness so that they can pursue something else that is more important to them today. God, help us to be great friends, great brothers and sisters of one another in the church. Help us to be great fathers and great mothers, great children, great brothers, great, great grandparents. Help us to be a people of faithfulness, that as we interact with a world that so desperately needs your light, that they would see that we are living in anticipation of a future hope that they can't yet see, but we can see because we know you and trust you. God, I pray that when our world sees us as a church and we are going about the business of building a life on you and on your word, that it might confuse some of them, for they see no need of it until the day that the rain comes. And it's on that day, it's our hope, Lord, that you would give them enough time to turn and return to you. Help us to be a people of hope, a people of joy, and a people of patience. Help us to live faithful lives that we might be ready for the day in which you return. It's in your name we pray, amen.